Amen. Well, it's great to worship with you, and feel free to cheer for yourself here because we are finishing up Royal Habits, and all of these patches have come to bear until today. But today, you are part of the 1% of the 1% that after today, you will say you have finished Second Kings. Yep, cheer because it's over, cheer because you're proud of yourself, whatever it is. But we have been on a journey together, and in our last habits, we've gone from prayer to trust, grieving, trusting while grieving, repentance, study, worship, and today is one of the hardest disciplines. It's the one that has not been demonstrated for us this whole chapter, whole book, learning from discipline. Only the most mature people, you don't chronologically grow into this, you spiritually grow into this, learning to be humble to accept consequences, not just say, I'm sorry that you feel bad. I'm sorry you took it that way. I'm sorry for what I did. And if it's true repentance and the consequences come, you don't immediately say, well, that's not fair. I shouldn't have to put up with that. Oh, not that long. Say, I'm sorry. I'll face the consequences. Teach me through these consequences. Those consequences may come in the form of a heavenly father's discipline, It might be harsher than you think because he's trying to grow you. It's a refiner's fire that's trying to burn some impurities out of you. It might be just sure reap what you sow consequences of your own actions. Or it might be just in a broken world, God allows certain things to come into your life and you don't like it and I don't like it, but God says, I want you to learn to grow through it. Quick reminder of where we are as we enter in these last chapters. We're in the time of the kings, Saul and David and Solomon. In the time of the kings, the kingdom has been divided into the north. As we saw last week, the north has just been taken over by Assyria. And now we're going to look at the south, who's about to be taken over by Babylon, who then conquers Assyria. God has warned, he has wooed, he has said, please, please, please turn around, and no one will listen to him. And today, the discipline of learning from discipline is simply learning how to take your lumps. Can you take your lumps? Because if we do, we can grow. But if you don't take your lumps, you will repeat your thumps. It will just be another, oh, if I didn't learn it when it was this painful, I'm going to have to learn it when it's that painful. If I don't learn when it's that painful, I'm going to have to learn it when it's this painful. When you don't take your lumps, you're going to repeat the thumps. So I want to give you three reasons to take your lumps. We'll talk about how to at the end. But why should I take my lumps? (laughs) Because instead of becoming a victim under your challenges, instead of becoming a person who, who sears your conscience, you can become a person who can grow through times of challenge or even discipline in your life. All right, first reason to take your lumps. If you take your lumps now, it'll grow you later. If you avoid your lumps now, your lumps become lumpier later. Yes, I make up words all the time. But it's true. It's true. It is true in our life. The lumps you take now grow you later, but the lumps you avoid now will just grow lumpier later. And that's exactly what happens to the king of Judah. In those days, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim, notice Kim because his son is very similar, became his vassal for three years. So for three years, God says, Babylon's in charge of you. I want you to learn humility. I want you to submit to his leadership. You wouldn't submit to mine. So I'm going to bring somebody in place to show you you need to submit. 
And for three years, he's done that as a vassal relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. However, I think that's enough. I don't think I should put up with more than this. So he turned and he rebelled against Babylon. And the Lord said, you're not taking your lumps. So the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans. And Chaldeans is another name for Babylonians. Bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of people of Amnon. You see, you didn't take your lumps. So your lumps are getting lumpier. Bands of raiders from all sides. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. The heat's turned up now. After all these chapters and all this grace and all this mercy and all these third chances, we're on the final straw, literally. And this is exactly according to the word of the Lord, exactly what he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. They said exactly this would happen if you do what you're doing. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because, and here's the big because, in case you haven't gotten it yet, he reminds us, because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. What did he do? He reminds us. He, he shed innocent blood. It was shed over and over and over and over again. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. I, 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 the blood is crying out for my justice. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Then it says, So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Well, maybe his son will learn those lessons. Maybe his son will learn how to take his lumps. So his son reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt, because it used to be, we're not going to trust God. We're going to trust Assyria. We're going to trust Egypt. God removes their security. And the king of Egypt did not come out to the land anymore to help. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of the Egypt to the river Euphrates. So Babylon has so expanded, he took over Assyria, which Israel was trusting in. Then he took over a lot of Egypt. He took all the way from the Euphrates down to the brook of Egypt. I mean, it's just a massive expansion. And this is a real person and character. The Bible mentions this. Archaeology shows him to be most, one of the most powerful leaders in history. There's a picture of his emblem, King Nebuchadnezzar. The whole book of Daniel is about serving during the 70 years that he will reign over the people of God. This particular uh, piece of archaeological find gives us the exact name of him. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Incredible, powerful leader. And interesting in history that he would come in and Babylonianize you. And if you submitted to his leadership, you could be prosperous and you could live pretty well as long as you didn't rebel. But you got to live under his authority. So much so, if you've ever seen the Iskar gates, these came from Nebuchadnezzar. A reminder of his reign that when you pass through those gates, you are under his authority and under his reign. You submit to his will. And God sent Babylon to teach his people how to take their lumps. Yeah, my friend Mark Whitaker, I talked to him last week. Mark is one of those guys who's had to take his lumps. Let me start with Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was one of the guys in the Watergate scandal who got caught being part of all kinds of uh, uh, corruption and things, and he ended up finding himself in prison. And while he was in prison... Someone introduced him to Jesus. He went from being the most powerful man in the, in the United States to literally being a nobody, and everybody abandoned him. 
Somebody introduced him to Jesus. He ended up writing a book called Born Again. So the term born again is very popular in our culture because of the book he wrote about his journey from taking his lumps in prison for what he had done. He was a changed man, and he began to see many in prison needed hope, and they needed the message of Jesus. He started the prison fellowship. Many years later, Mark Whitaker, who is part of a small group of people internationally who created the largest price-fixing scheme in human history, but nobody knew about it. He was so stressed out. His wife like, what's so stressed out? He finally confessed he was part of the largest price-fixing scheme in history. She said, you need to turn yourself into the FBI or I will. So he turned himself into the FBI. The FBI had no idea the scheme was going on. He ended up being an informant for the FBI, the, the only civilian informant to go for two years undercover. With this stupid lamp, they had a recording device he brought to every meeting to record all the evidence. And the FBI was so grateful that despite what he had done wrong, that he had done what they asked, done what they asked for so long, that they said, we're going to take your sentence and we're going to reduce it to two years. He said, I got arrogant again. No, after all everything I've done, I shouldn't have to face any consequences. I'll, I'll see you in court. Even though the FBI was supporting him, and still does, for all the ways he helped, instead of two years, he got ten years. But his wife said, I will be there with you, and she moved the family multiple times. They met with the family in prison with him all those years. During those years, he took his lumps, and Chuck Colson himself heard Mark's story and came and talked with him and did weekly Bible studies and calls with him, and that's when Mark became a follower of Jesus. An incredible redemptive story as God's worked in Mark's life. He is now the COO of the Coca-Cola Bottling Company with a Christian CEO, and they have basically turned the Coca-Cola Bottling Company, different from the Coca-Cola Company, into a giant Bible study discipleship program that the two of them are leading. He said, Chad, I just cannot believe the redemption. I never thought I'd have a chance to use my skills again. But it took 10 years <laughs> for me to get humble. How about you? Are you willing to take your lumps. If you don't, they just get lumpier. But if you do take them, it'll grow you later. Number two, if you don't take your lumps, your lumps will take you. Oh, and the ones you love. You say, oh, it's not going to hurt me. It's not a big deal. No, no, if you don't take your lumps, if you don't learn your lessons, if you don't learn the discipline of God, not only will it hurt you, those lumps you don't take will take you and the ones you love. And that's exactly what happens here. If you don't take your lumps, your lumps take you and those that you love. So Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for three months. Three months he made it. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And here it is again, verse 9. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Wow, has this worked out for any generation before? All those other kings? No. He doesn't take his lumps. He does evil again, and the lumps are going to take him, according to all his father had done. First thing, he loses his freedom. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. He personally comes down here. Then Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, his mother, oh, it's starting to affect other people, and his servants, and his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. You rebelling against me? Yes, sir. 
And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And now, he didn't take his lumps. His lumps took him. He's now lost his freedom as a prisoner. We have archaeological evidence of this in the Babylonian record. It was such an incredible empire. You see this everywhere. This particular piece is called the Jehoiakim Ration Tablet. It actually says that there's a certain ration of oil, a sila of oil, goes to Jehoiakim, that was the Babylonian spelling of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and a sila of oil for all the sons. He and his sons are imprisoned in Babylon because he refused to learn from the discipline of God. Well, it's not just that. They don't just lose their freedom, they lose all their finances too. Look at how many people are devastated here. So Nebuchadnezzar carried them out all the treasures, all. Notice how many times the word all is used. All the treasures of the house of the Lord, all the treasures from the king's house are gone. He cut in pieces all the articles of gold Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, chopped up all those sacred elements as the Lord had said it would happen. God said exactly this would happen if you don't take my discipline. And he carried into captivity all of Jerusalem, all the captains, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen, all the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. So now they've lost their freedom. They and everyone else around them has lost their finances. And now they lose their future. So he carried away Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. So Jehoiachin's going to be imprisoned in Babylon for 37 years. The king's mother, she had to take the lumps. The king's wives had to take the lumps. His officers, the mighty of the Lord, he got carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000 craftsmen, smiths, 1,000 who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. The whole nation's future has now been dismantled. That's what happens when you don't take your lumps. You let your secrets and your temptations and you just pretend you can just keep stringing it along and eventually it blows up and not just hurts you but hurts everyone around you. So here's my petition for you. Learn to take your lumps before they get lumpier and before they take you. I'll give you a couple examples where God did this in my life. I'll start one early in my life. I was in high school and I had took every conceivable speech class my school offered, and we had lots of them, speech class, advanced speech class, drama. I'd taken all the classes, and it was going to my senior year, and I wanted to take an independent study with our speech teacher, and she said she's willing to do it, and I just really wanted to continue to enhance my skills, and little did I know that I had to get approval, not from her, because we had a great relationship, but with her boss, Mrs. Roth, the head of the department. Well, a year earlier, I had taken American Literature. And I was a 4.0 student and had a high grade point average. And Mrs. Ross' grading system was hard to follow. I'll just say that. And I didn't know what my grade was. And she could never quite tell me what my grade was. And I just didn't think it was worth the risk. So I dropped her class. Apparently, I'm the only one who's ever dropped her class. Ever. And I had no idea that there was a chip on her shoulder with my name on it until that moment I walked in her office, literally just thinking I was going to get her name. Hey, I talked to Miss Noblock. She wants to do an independent study of speech with me. I just need you to sign off on this. She gets the paper. She looks at me, looks at the paper, looks at me. She says, not a chance. I tried to persuade. 
I tried to reason. I tried to suggest it. I already had the approval. I literally just need her to sign off. She said, not a chance. And I don't lose my temper very often. Probably less than five times in my life I've really lost my temper. But I lost my temper that day. And I practiced my speech skills for the next three minutes. And I unleashed on her anger and accusations. I told her what everybody in the school said about her behind her back is what I told her that day. I walked out of her, door, her room, slammed the door, marched my way down the stairwell, got into my Volkswagen Dasher. If you haven't heard of it, that's okay. They only made one. They always break down, and I had it. I'm in the Dasher. I drive my way home. I'm just, in the whole time I'm going home having those conversations, she would have said this, and I would have said that, and then she would have said this, I would have said this. I got some, ugh, the adrenaline's flowing. I'm angry. I'm mad. I'm justified. Pulling my car to my house, open the door, I take a step out, and I'll never forget that step. The Holy Spirit spoke to me as clear as he's ever spoken to me. Go back and apologize. No. <laughs> the way you spoke is unbecoming of a child of mine. I got back in my car. I drove all the way back to my high school. I walked down that hallway, praying she had gone home. <laughs> walked all the way up that stairwell, and I walked up to her door, and I just prayed, please, God, I obeyed, just have her not be here. Come, come, come in. I walked up to her desk. I said, Mrs. Roth, I am sorry for the way I spoke to you. It was inappropriate and it was wrong, and I'm sorry. She said, well, you know, I took a big man to come in here and apologize for that, and I appreciate that. She said, because you've done that, I want to make one thing really clear. You've shown yourself to be a person of integrity, and I'm still not going to approve that internship. <laughs> I said, well, I didn't come here for that. I came here to own what I did. And that was just a major point in my life that God used as a building block of would I take my lumps and take my consequences, listen to the Spirit. My last job before I came here, there was a situation going on with the, with the church and a senior pastor and I weren't getting along real well and he did some things that were really presumptuous. And I had made a couple sarcastic comments, which I do all the time, but these were a little bit more biting than usual. And he found out about it and it wasn't horribly out of line, I didn't think, but it wasn't great either. He calls me in his office and said, did you say such and such about me and what we're doing in this endeavor as a church? I said, yeah, I was kind of joking, but he said, that is insubordination. And I had enough moment to go, okay, if I was in his shoes, that does sound like insubordination. And I wanted to justify it and I wanted to excuse it. I said, you're right, I was wrong, I should not have said that, and I'm sorry. And I got demoted to some, I went from being the teaching pastor of the church to some bizarre, like, in the corner job for the next, you know, eight months where I barely got any time on stage, and I got called the assimilation pastor. I feel like a Borg, the assimilation pastor. And I had a best friend who was saying, Chad, you got such popularity in the church. You could lead the church. You could split the church. You could start a new church. And I could have. Without a doubt, I could have. And I said, that's not what God's calling me to do. He's calling me to submit even though this is hard, and I think it's unfair, and I think it's inappropriate, but God's calling me to submit under this. And I think it's what prepared me for coming here 20 years ago, one of the many things. See, I want to take my lumps before my lumps take the people around me. But you've got to be humble, 
you got to be open to feedback. you got to be willing to take responsibility, and it's not easy to do. Three, the reason we want to take our lumps is because if you don't see your lumps now as lumps, disciplinary lumps from the Father, loving disciplinary love and discipline from the Father, if you don't see them now, it's possible you won't be able to see them later for a variety of reasons. It's probably my last chance to sit in my throne here. I've got to sit in my throne for the last week we have this. But we sit in the throne of our own life, and God brings this discipline in our life, and, and we don't see it as discipline. We see it as life being unfair to me, and we, and we play the victim. And all of a sudden, the minute you start playing the victim, you can no longer see discipline as discipline. You just think, oh, it's poor me, poor me. And now you no longer see discipline as discipline anymore. You just say, oh, there's a black cloud over my head. God's out to get me. Life's out to get me. You lose the ability to see lumps. And for Jehoi, for Jehoiachin, it's going to happen literally. He's going to lose his ability to see the lumps. We sear our conscience. We lose the ability to hear constructive feedback. We just start believing our own lies and excuses, and that's what happens. If you don't see your lumps now, you'll lose the ability to see them later. Watch what happens. The king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place. All right, so nephew, remember, Jehoiachin, he's imprisoned in Babylon. As far as we know, we're never going to hear from him again. His uncle is in charge, and his uncle's name is Zedekiah. And so Zedekiah, let me go back here, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutah, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Doesn't take his lumps, doesn't learn the lessons. And Zedekiah, Uncle Zedekiah, doesn't see this discipline of Babylon from coming from God, and he will eventually not be able to see it at all. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah. God finally, look at that word finally, finally, God said, that's it. Generation after generation after generation after generation. Grace, 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 grace. Mercy, 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 mercy. Second chance, second chance, second chance, second chance, second chance. That's it. I've warned you. I've wooed you. Finally, he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah <laughs> decides to rebel against the king of Babylon. Zedekiah didn't see these lumps as lumps, and he lost his ability to see the lumps at all, as you're going to see in a moment. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and camped against it. They built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. So we get all kinds of inscriptions in Babylonian uh, art on this. But he would pretty much come upon a city. So here's the city here with people in it. He would just surround it. Anybody comes out, we kill you. If you don't come out, that's fine. You'll eventually run out of food and water. We're going to control your supply lines. And then eventually, after they starved to death and they were weak and had no strength, he would put in the ladders and send in his men, use his, his machines of war here to smash through the doors. It was very, very good at this. Then the city wall was broken through. All the men of the war fled at night by way of gate. At night, they're going to try and escape 
So get between the walls, which was by the queen's, king's garden, even though the Chaldeans, again, that's another name for Babylonians, were still encamped all around the city. They sneak out. And the king went out with them, snuck out. And the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. And they overtook the king in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king. Good old Uncle Zedekiah. They brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. I understand you uh, decided to rebel against me. Did you not get the horse head that I put in your bed? That was a warning. And they pronounced judgment on him. And they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He had to watch his own sons die because of his rebellion. And it's the last thing he ever saw. Because then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And what happened to him literally is what happens to us figuratively. When we don't see lumps as lumps, we stop being able to grow because we just start believing our excuses and lies. They bound him in bronze fetters. They took him to Babylon. And in the fifth month of the seventh year of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. For the next couple of verses, I'm going to fast forward through it. It just says, they burned this and they took this and they burned this and they took this and they burned this and they took this. Which jumps us down to verse 13. They're given more descriptions of what they burnt and stole and took. So the Babylonians took the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke them into pieces, carried their bronze to Babylon, took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, bronze utensils, which was the priests you'd minister in the temple for, the fire pans, the basins, the solid gold, the solid silver. The captain of the guard took them all away. Two pillars, the one sea, the carts, which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. Generations upon generations that have been entrusted to God have been taken away. The bronze, the, all these things, it was just beyond measure. You couldn't imagine everything they took. So here's a picture of what the temple would have looked like in Solomon's day. And still would have been existing in these days. When they say took the pillars, they're taking these. When they say they've taken the sea, that was a name for this big pot of water, the sea. All these wash basins, all the gold and silver everywhere just get stripped. He's never going to see it again. He's never going to see his kids again. He didn't take his lumps, and therefore he's got to keep repeating the thumps. So Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the hand of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. And now the fulfillment of all those warnings that God gave over all those years. To which you look at that, and again, you're like, that is so harsh. That is so hard. That destruction is so terrible. Which is why it points to the cross. When you see Jesus being brutalized, you're like, it's just too harsh. Couldn't he have died a, a nicer way? Yeah, he could have. But God sent him to be brutalized to show us what we deserve for our arrogance and our stubbornness, our refusal to prioritize him and his way, our, our, our inability to respond to his mercy, but we just keep rebelling. You know the reason he's on that cross? is because you and I won't look at 
and see our own sins. So when you see him on the cross being brutalized, just see that what he's taking is the payment for what we've done. And he figuratively gets his eyes crushed out, his body destroyed, because he can see what we've done and the consequence of it. And he wants us to know that he will take the destruction. He will take the pain. He will take our lumps and he will take all the thumps for everybody in that moment. So we could repent. And see that whatever's going on in my life, it can't be he doesn't love me because look at the lumps he took for me. So three reasons why we should take our lumps. They only grow lumpier if you don't. If you don't take them, they take you. If you don't take them now, you're not going to be able to see them later. So if I've convinced you why you should do it, then how do you do it? Three things as it finishes the chapter. Number one, how do you take your lumps? Number one, you need to accept the position you're in without excuses. I don't like the circumstances I'm in, whether they're my fault, whether God just allowing it, or whether it's discipline. I don't like these circumstances. God says that's true. But I want you to live faithfully and respond in obedience to me regardless of your circumstances, the position I've put you in. So with the uncle-blinded Zedekiah, he made Gedaliah the governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he puts a new guy in charge. Now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, we're going to find out what he says in a second, but Gedaliah will be one of the first representatives, governors, who will say, I'm going to do what God said, submit to the Babylonian king, and I'm going to do what the Babylonian king said, and I'm going to submit to him. Are you willing to accept the discipline God's given you without excuses? It's not easy to do. That's how you learn from discipline. And here's another hard one. Second way you take your lumps. Can I serve authorities I disagree with joyfully? There's a lot of things about Babylon that were totally out of sync with everything God was for. And God is going to tell them to serve their authorities faithfully and joyfully. And that's exactly what Gedaliah announces. He says to the people what the prophets have been telling them to say. So they came to Gedaliah and Mizpah, Ishmael, and Jazaniah, the son of Mashanhite, I'm sure I pronounced that right, they and their men, and Gedaliah took an oath before everybody, before them and their men, and said, do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. If we do this, we're going to dwell in this land, and we are going to serve the king of Babylon If we do that, it will be well with you. We're going to serve joyfully the king God has placed over us for this time. And this idea of serving the king becomes a major thesis of Daniel. Daniel, who gets taken to Babylon, has to figure out he's a prime minister of of, of Babylon. He's got to figure out in a pluralistic society where there's totally different values than Babylonians and and, and the God of Israel, he's going to figure out how to create policies and government that help bless everybody. And Jeremiah shows up and says the same thing to all of us. Look what Jeremiah says. It's the exact same thing of serving the king. Here's his mission statement while you're in Babylonian exile from Jeremiah. God says, I want you to build houses in Babylon, dwell in them, plant gardens, and eat fruit. I want you to bring beauty, beautiful gardens, beautiful places. I want you to serve people. 
I want you to take wives. You're going to be here for a while. They're going to get sons and daughters. They're going to take wives, your sons, and give them to daughters, to husbands, so they may bear sons and daughters. You're going to be here for 70 years. I'm not taking you out of this. I'm not going to answer prayers. 70 years. I want you to live here in Babylon. And while you're here, I want you to increase and not be diminished. And then here's the mission statement. And while you're living in Babylon, seek the peace of the city. The city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For Babylon? Yes. For its peace, you will have peace. Whew, that's a tough mission statement. And I think as we increasingly live in a post-Christian culture, we're called to the same. How do we figure out while living in this culture that's moving away from Christianity how to seek the peace of the city, to work within the systems that are in place here to try and seek the peace of the city for everyone in a pluralistic society. And I don't know what that looks like for you. For some of us, it might be evangelizing. Where you work, who you meet with, who you coach with, who your kids play on teams with, you just want to talk to people about your God because now you're surrounded by not fellow Judaizers or, Judaites or Israelites, you're followed with people who've never heard about your God, so you evangelize. Maybe like me and Beth, you feel like, hey, I want to work within the systems of the adoption or foster care, whatever it is, to create adoption, to, to take a child that otherwise would have been lost and, 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 to, and to seek the peace of the city by partnering in that way. Maybe that's for you. I have a friend who really felt like up in Kenwood, he felt like uh, he could do a better job in really representing everyone's values to seek the peace of the city by running for city council. And he felt called to that. And he felt like he wanted to be in the, in the challenges and, and mediocrity of, of a local uh, politics because he felt like he wanted to seek the peace of the city. Talked to somebody recently, and, and his kind of role in that is he's kind of working with this issue one going on and feels like in a, in a democratic republic trying to have our Constitution require 60% votes so that you have to convince more people before you made changes as a way to seek the peace of the city. Others of us are more artists. We seek the peace of the city by planting gardens. We write songs. We bring beauty. We bring an artistry to Babylon. So what we're doing as a church right now. We're partnering with Cincinnati Nature Center. We have over 1,000 plants that are coming our way. We're partnering with the city to create beauty right in our backyard that people come to our property who maybe never set foot in this room, but they will come and, and they will see beauty and a sacredness that might draw them to God. We're putting in flowers around our lakes, attracting the bees and the butterflies that are natural to this area. God is asking all of us to find a way within our skills, our leadership, and our scope to seek the peace of the city. To serve joyfully under a culture that increasingly is antagonistic toward who we are. It takes a lot of wisdom. Which brings us to the third step of how to take your lump. Can we trust that humiliation is the way of exaltation? In the seventh month, Ishmael came with two men and struck and killed a Galilean. He said the right thing, he told people to do the right thing, and they killed him for it. The Jews as well as the Chaldeans and all the people, small and great, and the captains of the armies went to Egypt and they were afraid of the Chaldeans. And it came to pass in the 37th year of captivity of Jehoiachin, oh, Jehoiachin, what happened to him? The king of Judah in the 12th month on the 27th day. Yeah, what did happen to him? I remember like 20 verses ago he was in prison in Babylon. 
after 37 years of being humbled, eating prison food, having no freedom, but taking his lumps. After 37 years, a new king's in charge in Babylon. Evil Merodach. Don't name your child Evil Merodach, by the way. It's a bad name. In the year that he began to reign, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. In one day, his life changes. He spoke kindly to him. He gave him a more prominent seat than all the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day all the days of his life. And here is how the book ends with that verse. Why would it end with that verse? Except that God still wants you to know there's hope. If you, like Jehoiachin, will take 37 years, you might feel like a prisoner, like God's abandoned, there's no hope. But if you will take your lumps, when you keep trusting me, when I humble you, then in a moment, in your humiliation, I will reach down and I will pull you up. And you will go from being a prisoner to your own sins to becoming royalty. But you notice what happened before that? In order for that to happen, someone had to die. Gadali had to die in order for a prisoner to become royalty. And Jesus had to die. So we were imprisoned to our own wrongdoing and our own selfishness and our own stubbornness. Because someone died, a new king comes and says, I will take a prisoner and make you into a royal heir. And I will provide for you and you will have a new position. That's what the Bible says. When we confess our sins, we become joint heirs with Christ. Pointing again to God's mercy and his grace for all of us. So the question is, are you willing to take your lumps? Are you willing to let God's fire and flame refine you and challenge you and conform you into his image? Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India. She came from Ireland. And she had all these girls who came out of these horrible circumstances and she started forming orphanages. But many of these orphans wondered, why did God let this happen? Why did I have to go through this? Why was this so hard? And one day she gathered them together in the city around a a silversmith and a goldsmith, and they watched him refining the gold and the silver. He would turn up the fire, stoke the fire, stoke the fire, and this beautiful silver, a beautiful gold pot, all of a sudden impurities would float to the surface, and he'd scrape it off. And then he'd flame that pot up again to get even hotter. And like, why is he making it hotter? Just watch, just watch. More impurities came to the surface, and he'd scrape them off. It wasn't destructive fire. It was refining fire. And they began to understand that God sometimes allows the fire to come into our life, not because he's against us, but because he's trying to refine us. He's trying to bring things out of our hearts that are there, but we just don't see them. One of the little girls turned to Amy Carmichael and said, well, how does he know when it's done? And she said, when he can see his reflection in the surface. The vision of your life is God's trying to conform you and I into the image of Jesus Christ. And he's going to sometimes have their refiner's fire a lot hotter than we want. But he's trying to clear off the impurities so he can see his reflection in our attitudes, in our tongue, in our eyes, and in our actions. It's a song we used to do a long time ago called Refiner's Fire. And I I asked the band to bring it back because I think it's such a way to make this song a prayer. Why don't you stand with me? The band comes out. I want you to think about whatever discipline in your life, whatever challenge in your life, whatever heat has been on in your life. And say, God, I'm not going to rebel against it. I'm not going to 
get mad about it. I'm going to ask you to use that fire to change me, to refine me, and to make me more like your son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Maybe you want to say, God, forgive me for what I've refused to learn. Forgive me for what I've refused to see. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for dying for me. I invite you to lead me. And Father, Father, I'm going to trust the fire in my life is not destructive. It's to produce discipline in me. Make me more like Jesus. Amen.